Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Von Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. As part of our recent online conversations with our contributors, mythologist and storyteller Dr. Martin Shaw joined us to read from his new book, Courting the Wild Twin, and talk about his recent op-eds for the magazine on the mythical response to the pandemic. In the moderated discussion that followed, Martin shared his thoughts on initiation, agency, and the move into the mythical. Our task now, he said, is to look at the prayer rug of our own lives as the mythic ground that we each stand upon. Hello, everybody, and welcome. My name is Emmanuel Von Lee, and I'm the executive editor here at Emergence Magazine. Today, we are delighted to present a special reading and conversation with acclaimed scholar, mythologist, and emergence contributor, Dr. Martin Shaw. Martin, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Today, Martin will be reading from his latest book, which is a fabulous read. Encourage everybody to grab a copy and enjoy the tales he offered within it. Um, Courting the Wild Twin. And he will be talking about the book, offering a reading, and then also talking about his recent op-eds with the magazine. And later in the hour, we'll have time for questions from all of you. So let me get started by just offering a short introduction to Martin and his new book. Dr. Martin Shaw is a writer, artist, teacher, and mythologist. His books include Wilf Milk, The Night Wages, A Branch from the Lightning Tree, Snowy Tower, and Scatterlings, and his latest book, Courting the Wild Twin, that he'll be reading from today. He is also the founder of the West Country School of Myth, a learning community located on Dartmoor in the far west of the United Kingdom. In Courting the Wild Twin, Martin unravels two ancient European fairy tales concerning the mysterious wild twin located deep inside of us, summoning us to the ragged edge of the dark wood to seek out this estranged, exiled self, the part we generally shun or ignore to conform to societal norms and invite us back into our consciousness. Courting the Wild Twin is a book of literary activism, an antidote to the shallow thinking that typifies our age. It challenges us to wake up, to revive our condition of wondering and examine our broken relationship with the world. For we need to think boldly, wildly, and in new ways about ourselves as individuals and as a collective to confront modern challenges with purpose, courage, and creativity. One of the fairy tales Martin unravels in the book is the story of the lindworm. And, and three summers ago, Martin was visiting our little hamlet of Point Reyes with the writer Paul Kingsnorth for some events where he told the lindworm story. And Martin and I were just reminiscing about that three years ago, and yet it seems a lot longer, especially in light of the last few months' events. And when Martin was here, we sat down and we did a filmed interview. 
And Martin offered a telling of that Linworm story. That emergence ended up turning into an animated short film featuring Martin, which if you haven't watched, I encourage you to do so, for it offers a brilliant, if truncated, reading of the story and telling of the story. So Martin, it's wonderful to be in conversation with you again and to have you here to read from your new book. So without further ado, I'd like to hand things over to Dr. Martin Shaw to read from his new book, Courting the Wild Twin. Thank you very much. So hello, folks. Uh, I've never done this before, actually. So uh, forgive me for my uh, wayward ways, I'm sure, as it progresses. It's a, probably a different time of the day here in uh, Dartmoor in Devon than it is for you. We're sort of moving, moving towards dusk. Uh, and I've got a little single malt rescue remedy that they make up on the islands. So just to say a few words about Wild Twin before I read a little bit from it. I'm sitting at the desk that I wrote the book from uh, last summer. It was an unusual book for me because I wrote it in a, it wasn't a frenzy, but I felt like I didn't really leave the desk till the thing was done and it didn't need excessive revisions. And the, the joy of that for me as a writer is that whenever I come back to it now, I have no memory of writing the bloody thing. It seems to have <laughs> arrived from somewhere else and is tutoring me in things that I have really needed to learn about in the last few months. Everywhere I put the book, when I put it down, it's moved by the time I get there. It's got kind of life to it. So I'll read a little bit from it. I never plan what I'm going to say. Um, so I'll extemporize a little bit as I go and we will see just what on earth is about to happen. So let's begin. So this notion of a wild twin. I was very lucky uh, when I was younger in my 30s to come into, and it's an old word I'd use, the tutelage, the tutelage of the Sicilian storyteller Gioia Timpanelli and the great seminal American poet Robert Bly. Uh, I was lucky enough to be like a little duck going behind the big ducks for a while. So I would have heard them tell these stories. So a lot of what I'm, well, a lot of what I've gathered in this book really is a tribute to my, to my elders who I, I love and venerate, especially at a time like this. So whatever happens this evening, whatever's good in it comes from them. So when, as a kid, did I first come across this notion of the wild twin? I'll read a bit about it. Who is the wild twin? I first caught the perfume of my wild twin by walking with muddy boots through wet grasses to my scrubby woodland den as a six-year-old. As the trees swirled, I caught a scent and I started to cry without understanding. I wove a pheasant feather in my hair. I hear it now, that wild twin in the owl court, who hoot across the frost grass and the moon-touched lawns of my cottage. There's more than book smarts in that chill delirium. These are not domestic tones, not corralled tones, but loose as Dartmoor ponies on the hill. And they give me ecstasy. Not safety, not contentment, certainly not ease, not peace, but ecstasy. It's almost painful. It makes me restless. 
I also felt the wild twin when I lost the girl that I loved the most. I felt it when attending to the sickness of another. I felt it when I was exhausted and I was heart sore and I was bewildered and despairing. I felt it when I attended to the sorrows of life in all their radical, unruly agency. The wild twin is not unique to me. You have one, everyone has one. That's the message from the old stories. That the day you were born, a twin was thrown out of the window and sent into exile. That it wanders the woods and the prairies and the cities, lonely in its whole body for you. It rooms in abandoned houses in South Chicago. Someone saw her once on a Dorset beach in winter. They're always asking after you. It lives in the feeling when the ruddy mud of the Nile squeezes between your toes, when moonlight slips from the mouth of a heron, when you play cards with a delightful villain. It's going to push you towards ruin on occasion, and it has a lot of generosity towards kids. It will hide your laptop. It'll send a thousand wild geese processing over your tent on an October dusk. The wild twin is the vintner of the blood wine of your many private battles. And it sells it in highly prized bottles to remote Armenian queens. My God, that's a mouthful. I like it so much, I'm going to read it again. The wild twin is the vintner of the blood wine of your many private battles and sells it in highly prized bottles to remote Armenian queens. That's exactly the sort of line that they try and break, you know, beat out of you at school, isn't it? It's incorrigible, melodramatic, and it only has your best interests at heart. Know your twin and you will become distracted by fiery angels languishing around the water cooler. You will beat your palm to drums no one else can hear and subtle ideas will fly from you. At least that's what I hear. The wild twin doesn't fetishize surety, embezzle guarantees, or even really believe they exist. It hides chocolate in the pockets of your scruffy-haired nephews. It whispers forgiveness as it walks through the gardens we have neglected to tend. And it hands us a spade. So that's kind of in a strange way. It's almost as fresh for me as it is for you. If there's one word that I would love most of all to be transmitted from Courting the Wild Twin to anybody that's listening now or to, to anybody that's read it, it's this word, agency, agency, that in our brief few years in this wonderful barbarous heaven called earth, we make our way through it as if we could carry the swagger of an owl or a heartbroken raven, as if the things that we care about need defending and that we build a life around them, and we try and curate as much beauty as we can, you know, often with uh, the odds stacked heinously against us. That's always part of the arrangement with myth. With myth, every story begins, you're outnumbered and outgunned. Goethe talks about this, actually. There's an energy in us that doesn't really kick in until the stakes are very high. 
And so what I hope most of all from the book, and I'll read some more in a second, is that you walk away from it. You know, I don't need any more disciples, but what I do need, what we all need, is people to look at the prayer rug of our own lives with our divorces and our depressions and our illness and the rest of it and go, wow, this is the mythic ground I stand upon. How on earth do I grow corn from it? How do I grow corn from this kind of crap? That's how you make a grown-up, is those sort of questions. So I'll move on a bit. What's this next bit? Oh yeah, here's a way to begin. This section is called, What Do You Love? Recently, I spent an evening with a group of academics and students talking about reaching out to the earth. They were in complete agreement that Eros was the bedrock relationship to all living things, Eros. That sensual, tingling, vivacious connection. And it was a big hit with everyone, this idea. You could feel it in the room, that you trusted your senses and took pleasure in them. And I think we all like this idea. What's wonderful is that it brings us utterly into the present moment without a scientist or a guru or a preacher to interpret it. As many have noted, especially Joe Campbell, religion is often a wonderful defense against having a religious experience. Now here's the caution. Addiction only to Eros is the end of loyalty to a place or a person or a community. One evening you will wake up and you will not find the nightingale under your window because it's a more the nightingale comes for, not Eros. A more, by the way, A-M-O-R. It's the thing that the troubadours and Pablo Neruda are always twittering about. It's a more the nightingales come for, not Eros. It has specificity. Eros can't be the whole story. If it was, we could just squat down anywhere and open to its unfoldings. And for most of us, that can't work. Some places claim us, some don't. Openness to all can be the end of loyalty to anything in particular. I'll read that again. Openness to all can be the end to loyalty to anything in particular. As if everything was freighted just the same. It's not. Myth doesn't traffic in that kind of equality. I think many of them are refused with them more. They are a love letter to a very specific bend of a river where the salmon run in a blue-smoked Connemara autumn, or a crest of Devon granite tools forged from combat between Arthur himself and a powerful West Country spirit. As the great Tom Waits once said somewhere, a song needs an address. Every land-spun detail in a story is an ivory comb through the mane of it. It is a tenderness, a remembering, an intimacy that maintains a potent charge between human and the earth that in its fullness could be called a songline. And we actually pine. We're all heartsick that we're far away from this. And our, our, our more brings heartsickness, not just libido. But that very sickness can have discernment at its core and I want to fight for it. We rarely fight for an abstraction, not necessarily even for our country. We fight for our regiment or the village 
or the home or our kids. This specificity in its ensuing heart sickness is not a weakness, but an indicator. It provokes what we stand for, how we earn our name. I'm hugely interested in this idea in 2020. How do we, as a culture and as a peoples, how do we earn our name? How do we rise to our name? It can flare up enormous acts of courage. And then I talk about being claimed by certain stretches of Devon. I can't just bounce from ecstasy to ecstasy across the world. Flower to flower makes you a gigolo, not a husband. And the underworld wants to make a husband of you. The underworld wants to make a wife of you. It makes you want to be a being of fidelity wherever you are on the spectrum. I'll read one more little bit and then I'll, I'll pass it back. Anybody that's worked with me for a time will know this. Uh, it's a practice that I do constantly. It's called 12 Secret Names. And the idea comes from, I, I would have known about it before I read it, but this is a quote from the wonderful uh, philosopher, my great hero, Gaston Bachelard. And he says this, the world seeks to be admired by you. Isn't that wonderful? Every time you go for a walk, everything's trying to get your attention. You know, check me out. The world seeks to be admired by you. So could we drop the Latin for a while? Could we stop these rather abstract, thesaurusy pronunciations and actually stop telling the, li the living earth what it is? Could we actually settle for a while and pay enough attention that it starts to disclose something back? And when it does, you can often praise it by giving it 12 secret names from that encounter. So I'll say that again. In these times, is it not a moment to stop telling the earth what it is and what its fate will be? Is it not time to start beholding and not dictating? There is some particular constellation of relatedness that will befit you almost as a cosmology if you give it requisite attention. Between animals, weather, nature, the maturity and the irascibility of your character, you will constellate. Even if you don't want it, you're going to end up having a spiritual life. <laughs> in a mad and fractured time, this is getting a glimpse of substantial ground. Go looking for your beloved. Seek them out. Attend to them. Give words away with no thought of personal advantage. Be like Robin Hood in this regard. The earth may be hurting, bewildered, furious beyond comprehension, but lower your gaze a little. Find some small pocket you love and settle until they have something they wish to whisper to you. The old stories are a currency they understand, they adore even, because occasionally they hear their own voices speaking back to them. All right, that's all I got for now. That sounds like, looks like plenty to me. Martin. Thank you so much for those words and reflections, potent reflections at this time. We'll soon have time for some questions from all of you. Uh, and before we get to the questions, I have a few of my own I wanted to ask you, Martin. So the first one, and I was thinking about this yesterday, uh, which was when I first came across the Lindworm story, it was actually through a piece called The Age of the, the Year of the Serpent that your friend and, and our colleague here at Emergence, Paul Kingsnorth wrote. 
And he, he had heard you tell this story at an event and had been very moved by it and wrote a piece, in, you know, where he was really talking about how this tale offered a way to understand and reflect on what had just happened with the 2016 presidential election and the rise of Trump. Um, the year when what was exiled would come to haunt us, that 2016 was the year of the serpent. And this is something you've also spoken about. And I think we talked about it when we spoke um, three years ago. But it seems almost like 2020, with the pandemic and the powerful and vitally important protests and Black Lives Matter movement demanding racial justice, is also a year of the serpent, perhaps even more so. So I wonder if you could speak to this a little bit and the renewed relevance of the linworm in the midst of our current crisis. Yeah, I, I will. I will. Yeah, good question. Good question. Uh, and for anybody, uh, it's worth looking at Paul's essay from that time. I haven't seen it for a while, but I remember it was very good. So the story of the lindworm is circling around this idea that the night you were born, you had a twin and the twin was hurled out of the window because it didn't fit the shape of the culture or the environment or the society around you. It was sent into exile. And this little being, which in the story is a slippery black snake, slips off into the forest, is effectively voiceless for two decades. But from a distance, it sees the castle where its um, happy little glowing younger brother exists. And the boy grows and he gets to a point where he uh, wishes to go out into the world and to marry. And of course, what he encounters waiting for him in its massiveness, in its uh, strange Blakeian energy. Blake, William Blake always used to say, why does the word devil have so much more energy than the word God? Why does the word devil have so much more energy than the word God? So that wild twin is out there in the story is a serpent. And it says, older brothers marry first. I need to be wedded. I need to be courted back into the kingdom. Now, I mentioned him earlier on. My great um, teacher, Robert Bly, said a very important thing about 30 years ago. He said, why is it that so many of us are life preserving, but not life giving? Think about that, life preserving, but not life giving. In other words, you do the right yoga, you look after your body, uh, you think unpolluted thoughts, and frankly, you try and live a good life, and I salute that. But at the same time, some essential life force is often absent. There's no pirate anymore. There's no bandit queen anymore. We're too sensible. We overthink everything. Now, here's the thing. The being in the forest in the story is not someone you're going to pull out at a bar mitzvah or to, uh, to babysit, but there's a kind of fierceness that's also been sent into exile with that shape. So the story of courting the wild twin, really, I, let me just flag up. Uh, I'm not a Jungian. I admire Jung, but I'm not working out of a Jungian model. I come out of a story model uh which they use but i'm i'm not kind of corralled by the jungian way of thinking about this story so 
I don't pretend to understand the story. I don't actually like it when stories feel that they've been anaesthetized or castrated by meaning or allegory. You just have to let the story have its way with you. All I know in this tale, the, the big part of the story is bringing out of exile a very dark, very powerful energy, whether it's in you as a person or whether it is us as a culture or as a society. In other words, we can't smooth over the cracks anymore. And what the Lindworm is a masterclass in is the ritual approaches we have to take when we are going to trade, again, I'm coming back to Blake here, when we're going to trade innocence for experience. And the time that we're in now, whether it has been this kind of peculiar, enforced, initiatory, but don't quite know where it's going experience of coronavirus, whether it is the, for me in England, the peculiarity of us, we had just ostensibly floated away from Europe with Brexit, and then this happened. That's called glutton for punishment. Um, we're in the dark materials that myth talk about. We're in the messes that myth talks about. Um, all I will say to wrap this question up, which I've not answered very well, but I'm, I'm going in a kind of a circle with it, uh, is to say this. For me, actually, the lindworm is not the story that I'm working at, at the moment. The story I'm working with at the moment is called Ivan and the Grey Wolf. And that involves a young man setting out on a journey. And at a certain point, he comes to a, a piece of rock and it says, if you go left, you will die, but your horse will live. If you go right, your horse will die, but you will live. He chooses right. Three days later, a wolf comes out, devours him, kills the horse and says, where you want to go, you're going to have to get on my back. And I'm going to go faster and stranger. And I'm going to take far more unpredictable routes than anything you previously knew. It is no longer horse time. It is wolf time. Uh, and he jumps on the back of the wolf and the whole thing begins. So actually, that for me has more of the chime of now. The horse Everything that's ever supported you, every, the weight of it underneath you think you understand, there is not a lot to hold on to at the moment. We are deeply in the liminal. So that's just a little image that I wanted to give. Look for the story. You can find it anywhere. Ivan and the Grey Wolf uh, said, yeah, oh, wolf time, not a horse. I guess my next question kind of picks up off of where you left off, Martin. Um, because it really does feel like we are living in mythological times right now. I mean, if you started off a tale with in the winter of 2020, a plague swept the planet in a matter of months, almost the entire population was forced into isolation, gripped with fear and uncertainty. The machine that is the global economy sputtered to a halt. No one would believe it. And yet here we are. So how does recognizing we are living in a mythological time change the way we can be present within the moment. It's, it's everything. That move into the mythical is absolutely everything. Without it, we're caught in hysteria, we're caught in the shrill of statistics, we're caught in hopelessness, and we're caught in what just seems bad luck. Now, myth just doesn't operate like that. Myth has a word for a moment like this. 
here it is, underworld. Underworld. Because the old idea with the myth is that you don't just become a woman or a man through sheer diligence and all the betrayals and the ferocity of life combined. They work on you until one day in your dotage, you may have become a human being. We're all in training, you and I, at this moment. But the place you go for the training is now. It's now. It's not a time when everything was just sailing. That way, as a sailor, you're just going around Torquay Harbour over and over again, and you never actually set out into the wild Atlantic. This is the wild Atlantic. This is dangerous. And the stories we choose to remember as a culture are the ones that have the crow marks on the face of it. They have the quality of experience. And so a mythic understanding of now is going to take us out of the facts of the matter, out of the statistics of the matter, out of the, I would say, the despair of the matter and into the grief. Out of the despair and into the grief. They're not quite the same things. And as soon as you start chewing it around with a story in your mouth, there is a very sophisticated form of intelligence that starts to grow in you. I see it all the time. We see it in our children. We constantly see it in our kids. And then something happens at adolescence where it tends to get shut down. But it's why I, I, you know, I, I adore, I'm crazy for children. I love kids partially because I can see that some part of their imagination is one, still mythological, and two, hooked in to an imagination that's bigger than just theirs. This is a moment for our minds and our souls to get bigger than just our uh, ambition, I suppose, is what I'm saying. I mean, the op-ed that you wrote for Emergence, I think it was your second one, uh, the first one, keeping the smoke hole open, when, yeah. right when this hit. Uh, and you followed it up with a second one, which was called, Is This an Initiation? where you spoke about this time being initiation and each house, each apartment, each room was an alchemical hut as we were isolated and uh, forced to look not just at the situation, but ourselves and how we respond to it. And that was written a couple of months ago. Um, and now the situation is unfolding. So I'm, I'm curious to hear for you how this initiation is changing and what it maybe means as we leave the lockdown state that we were all in for so long. I wrote this article for the magazine and one of the questions was, uh, does this kind of qualify in uh, our cultural imagination as an initiation? And the argument of the, of the article was that it did, but the thing that was so unusual about it as an initiation was that it wasn't being carefully curated by human beings. We weren't surrounded by wise individuals that knew roughly the way this may turn out. Uh, we were, it's something that is actually happening and is being dictated by forces that are bigger than us. So I thought that it qualified as an initiation of a sort but there was no guarantee of, you know, quote unquote success. I do not believe that we will all march out of this having had a, a generalized opening of the soul or illumination. I'm really pleased you mentioned that bit in the article where I described it everywhere as little huts, because I realized we're all having radically different experiences of this. Certain things 
bring us together as human beings. But in other ways, we've all had very different encounters with it. I don't know what's going to happen next. I won't be, have anything of any weight to say for about another year, which is not, you know, people want more from me than I can give at the moment in this regard. But I am 20 years into being a wilderness rites of passage guide. I have spent thousands of hours involved with wild encounters uh, and what we call initiatory experience. And what I know is at this point, you need to some degree to incubate the seeds that you've been given. It's too premature, I'm afraid. It's part of our cultural addiction to results that we are immediately meant to be illuminated about this. That isn't how myth works. Myth works, you'll know this beautiful, strange word, chthonic. The stories deal with our subterranean. And I'm a subterranean guy. When I was a child, I could barely swim. But as soon as my parents got me a snorkel and goggles, I could go for hours, simply because I could keep my head under the water and I was always interested in what was underneath. So myth is not going to give us sound bites right now. And I know this is a grind for a lot of people who are desperate to get out and be part of, uh, you know, get the bunt. Do you know what bunting is in America? It's, yeah. um, we have bunting. Uh, it's the kind of thing we have on kind of bank holidays. We get the bunting out. It's like little things that hang and flap in the air and we all kind of dance around maypoles and stuff. All I'm saying is brood. It's the old Irish way. It's to brood a little bit, to have some of your, uh, you know, single malt rescue remedy and just really feel into this. Um, otherwise, and I'll finish with this now, otherwise I suggest that we, we did not honour the invitation that this really is. We didn't go deep enough. Mm. We didn't go deep enough. Mm. Uh, we, we got out of the underworld prematurely and we didn't sit and grind in its consequence. I'm not a masochist. Uh, I'm not suggesting more punishment. I've been trapped in this room for a quarter of a year. I'm keen to get out myself. Um, but I know for me right now, I need to see this play out a little longer. Thank you. I, I, I'm going to turn it over to some questions from our audience here. They've been flooding in. Um, and I'm going to start with one from... Hannah Field, uh, and she's asking a question that uh, in response to what you spoke about earlier and read from The Wild Twin. And she asks, can you please speak more about earning our name? How does this manifest? It manifests by your character and behavior. You know, this is the interesting thing, isn't it? You know, uh, everybody wants some, you know, highfalutin shamanic moniker. You know, my name is blah, 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 blah. But actually, if you've been around indigenous cultures, the way you get a name, the way you get named, you don't, A, you can't name yourself. And B, the people that know anything in that culture watch how you behave. And they watch how you behave when you think no one is looking. And that is the name you get. So it's very rarely sweet grass woman it could be man who was late to collect his children from school on monday so in answering the question here's a here's a here's a thing 
the Irish tell us that in actual fact, at night, every night, all the Irish gods and the Fianna and the Chuata de Danon and all the fairy folk, they gather around the fire and the stories they want to hear, their fairy tales are the stories of our life. So they want to know about who we are, how we lived, what we defended, what we let go of, how we carried ourselves in our few precious years on the planet. And if our life is robust and eccentric enough, you could make a goddess cry. That's how you earn your fucking name. Next. <laughs> this is a question from Tara Shapersky, and she asks, can you talk a bit about the relationship of person to place? How does that or does that not play into recognizing and encouraging your wild twin? Oh, I think person to place uh, is hugely important. Uh, the distinction or the question I would raise is what is the difference between being from a place and of a place? To give you a very basic example, my family, the Shaws, have lived in the West Country of England and various iterations of the Shaws have lived here for maybe 200 years. Uh, also the Braes of Cornwall down the road. However, I have a friend, Satish Kumar, uh, founder of Schumacher College and other things, born on the other side of the world, rocks up in, in Devon 40 years ago and is now clearly against all statistical odds of Devon. He's of Devon. Uh, the bones of his dead are not here which is usually a big number for traditional people. Do you have the bones of the dead in the place? In other words, a lot of my family may have been from Devon, but I don't know if they were of Devon. I don't know how deep the relationship went with some of them. I, I, I really don't know. It's a question. But I know in our lives, so many of us, especially in America, are currently in places we never, ever expected to be. And all I can say at that moment is if you're feeling overwhelmed by your environment, if you're living in a place that you're not comfortable in, the technique I always used is to do actually what we used to use as a form of divination in the bardic world. I would take myself years ago to a little park in London where there was a hazel bush and my devotional quiet life would be focused around the four and a half foot of the bush. So placed people, it is hugely important, but I'm not someone that insists that relationship to place is only authentic if it has the bones of your dead in it, because I've seen that that is not always the case. This is a question from Amy Young, and she says, hello, Martin, this is Amy from the Great Mother Conference. Well, yeah, I know. After all the trauma here in Minneapolis and beyond, yeah. of course, uh, Amy's asking if you had any particular words of wisdom for us as far as dealing with trauma, individual as well as collective trauma. This is just, again, these are vast questions. Uh, quickly, uh, first of all, Minneapolis is a place very dear to my heart. I know. Minneapolis to some degree and I have a lot of friends there and my usual advice 
is not really going to work for people in Minneapolis, which is get to the sea. <laughs> not a lot of sea in the Midwest, but you do have the lakes. So I would, if you're really dealing with trauma uh, on a very pragmatic level, get, get to a big, a big chunk of water, get to, a, get to water, get to moisture uh, and sit there and sit there and sit there. You know, the irony is the day that I first heard of coronavirus, I had just finished a 101 day ritual in the forests very near where I lived. I'd been visiting it for 101 days. So I had just come out of that environment ready for a bit of social life. <laughs> Boom. So water is one thing. Stories is another. In the Celtic tradition, if you've gone through trauma, which we all do, uh, it's not, I don't mean this in a, in a stupid way, it's not exceptional. It is part of the living, the experience of life. You always needed with you raising your kids, what they call the swan feather cloak. The swan feather cloak is made of two things. It's made of stories that support, nourish and deepen you. And it's made of that little intimate relationship to place that I just mentioned. So for any of us that are reeling right now, go back to the stories where your heart first opened. Okay. James Joyce has a phrase he calls, it was called aesthetic arrest. Aesthetic arrest means the things you love beyond having to think about loving them. They're not sophisticated things that you learned to appreciate. They're the things that claimed your heart at the beginning of your life. Go back. Go back to the stories that first moved you. Go back to the places that touched your heart. Listen to music. You know, list, that's what I would say to Amy, if your heart is hurting right now, listen to records for three days. Cry as long, as long as you need to weep. I'm not trying to be trite at this moment. I'm just giving as practical suggestions as I can. Thank you, Martin. This is a question from Karen, and she asks, how do we grow our peripheral vision to see what lies at our edges? That's lovely to move what you could call from the explicit to the tacit. Well, uh, you could go and hang out with hunter-gatherers for a start. You could be around trackers. There's a, a beautiful movement uh, of uh, trackers in North California, you know, very where you are, I have a lot of friends that really have shown me that the way to understand peripheral vision is to trail and track things and not to trap them. When you trap something, that's the mode that the West has been in for thousands of years. When you trail something, you are in a, in the best sense of the word, an indigenous frame of mind. You're not looking to do that to it. You're looking to watch it behold. So in terms of seeing things out of the corner of your eye, I would go back to my bachelor thing. You know, the world seeks to be admired by you. So, Tomorrow, not in three days' time, but tomorrow, go for a walk, take at least two hours, and somewhere on that walk, something is waiting for your attention. And just sit quietly with it. Don't tell it, don't psychologize it, don't tell it it's your mother. Don't tell it it's anything. 
let it be its beeness, and it might be out of the very edge, you know, the trembling edge of your uh, of your vision, you start to receive something back from that tree. That's a good way to go with it. It's a great practice, great advice. Uh, I have a question here from Anthony Scarpula, and he says, hello, Martin. I'm currently working my way through scatterlings. In it, you say disorder is a kind of cheap trick to mimic the psyche's desire for initiation. When it fails to be ritually provided, we try to compensate by creating the mayhem without the magic. Looking around at the state of things, especially here in the U.S., it's quite apparent how starved we are for some semblance of initiation. How does one find it in a world that currently seems hell-bent on eradicating it? And he seems to be speaking to a different kind of initiation than the collective initiation that we're all dealing with at the moment. Again, another very intelligent, huge question. Uh, What we're dealing with is... um, and I remember hearing this phrase once from uh, the astrologer Caroline Casey, talked about toxic mimics, toxic mimics. So when we use a word like initiation, it kind of is and isn't what uh, a bush, you know, Kalahari Bushman would recognize as an initiation or someone from the Northern Territories. So I've got to go back to a very simple idea, but it's very deep. Uncolonize your imagination. Start there today there's no time to wait uncolonize your imagination spend a year only wearing the clothes you really like fill your house with the music that moves you if you see something that touches your heart reach out and communicate that to that person you know um you've got to start to matter at some point we're back to the issue of earning your name you know there's got to be a a lintel above every door where you figured one or two things out in your life that you're going to stand for. You're going to stand for to the point where you'll take the consequence of standing for them. I was probably talking about something in, in Scatlings where I talk about the addiction to disorder. Now I used to work with street gangs. A street gang is a attempt to self initiate groups usually of young men, sometimes young men and young women. But the aspiration underneath it is quite natural, quite holy. But the way it manifests when we've lost all trust or connection to an older generation, it comes out askew. It comes out, again, to uh, use uh, Bly's phrase, it comes out not wild, but feral. This isn't a wild time that we're in. This is a feral time that we're in. This is a damaged time that we're in. And we are writhing in the consequence of our uninitiated sensibility, our lack of consciousness around it. I don't think that that's uh, overstating it. I want to return to that phrase you said, uncolonize our imagination. Um, because it seems like you're also talking about the need to cull the unnecessary, the clutter that we filled our lives in, and that an initiation can only occur when there is a space for it to unfold within you. Uh, and returning to, to the op-ed that you wrote, you know, one of the things you talked about, which was regardless of the hut that you're in, or regardless of the experience you're having, be it good, bad, or ugly, there is an opportunity to reflect on what really matters at this time, and an opportunity to also shed 
things that might have been harder to shed before because in this time of great unknowing where what was maybe beneath the surface has become more apparent to many of us in a very literal way, there is an opportunity there. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. Well, I love the idea of things falling away, the unnecessary falling away. Back in the story you mentioned at the beginning, the lindworm that's in Wild Twin, uh, you finally, the story ends up actually, the exiled serpent has to remove a lot of his scales. He doesn't do it himself. He does it in dialogue and relationship with a very uh, savvy, witty young woman that's actually committed to be his wife, kind of incredibly. And I wonder what doesn't suit us anymore. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Um, my experience recently with the vigils in the forest uh, that I mentioned earlier on, to be honest, uh, and I'm not going to reveal them here, but I was left with nine words. I went through all of that, 101 days, nine words, and I was lucky to get them. That feels like a good payment to me. I'm very skeptical of the swift route these days. Uh, but I would suggest that your deep naturalness is to be taken seriously. Your deep naturalness is to be taken seriously. Um, the soul seems to be interested in nostalgia. I was talking to someone yesterday, and, I, and I've written about this as well. It's not common. It's not unique to me. I was saying to someone, why is it that the girl you met on a train for three hours has more emotional significance to you than the wife you tufted out with for seven years? What on earth is going on in us as human beings where certain moments very swiftly have great significance and our soul and our givenness to nostalgia, I don't think is just an indulgence. I don't think nostalgia is necessarily a weakness. I think it is, it is us combing through the passages of time, combing through the, the moments in our life where we actually troubled our soul into conversation. Troubled our soul into conversation. The old idea is that our souls take some required contact. They're not always there available to us. You know that feeling when you go numb for weeks, you just numb out? The soul requires libation, it requires ceremony, it requires to use one of the biggest words in my rap sheet, fidelity. The soul requires memory as much as it does imagination, that you keep going back and you keep going back and you keep going back. And then actually you begin to live a soulful life, which I think most of us listening to this right now is something that we long for. The reality of a soulful life is that means awareness of a certain kind of discomfort on occasion. A soulful life is not a sedated life. So I think some of us are going to come out of this far more restless than when we went in. And I've got to say, restlessness makes good art. And I'm a fan of good art. <laughs> well, the hour is, is drawing, unfortunately, to a close. And I wonder if we could, we could end our time together with another short reading from from Certainly. Coring the Wild Twin. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd just like to say, 
Uh, I can't see anybody out there, but I know you're there. And, and I know a lot of my friends are watching, you know, a lot of people from Point Reyes in all over the world. And uh, this is my big date. You know, I haven't been out for months on end. So uh, <laughs> you're in my heart, is what I'm saying, especially to my, my little family. Right. Okay, where are we? I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish with a, uh, something that you and I don't get a lot of. I'm going to finish with a blessing, a big, proper, spiritual blessing. Because that actually, between me and you, you know, don't tell anybody. But I think what we're all so desperately hunger, hungry for is contact with something deeply spiritual at this point. We may use another word for it. It doesn't matter. I don't care what the word is. I think that's it. So this is a little, this is how the book ends. And what I'm doing, you, you won't know what I'm doing in a way if you don't know the story, but I'm choosing moments from these fairy tales to wish their good fortune on you. And this is how it goes. May you always be fertile at the center of your kingdom. If you fall to fallow, as we sometimes must, May you meet the old woman of the forest. May you meet the serpent and the crossroads. May you hear the music when your people call you back. May you be lucky enough to meet educated hearts when you do. And may the bath of milk soothe the rawness of your flayed skin. May you meet your tattered twin. May you never forget her perfume, his laugh their genius glee. May you encounter all the appropriate trouble. May you sail north and let stories fall like snowflakes on your deck. May you be a worthy candle in this world. May you be a worthy candle in this world, not too brash, but of the deep light that illuminates where resting animals lie in fresh hay under green boughs that God's own owls hoot from. And this last bit really, this is for all of us, but if anybody's watching this who's sick, this especially is for you. May you defend what you love. Don't go easy and enter the great longhouse of your people when your time comes. Your people will be singing. May the fire be lit for you. May you have white gold on your fingers, hounds by your feet, wine for your cup, and blessed food for your plate. Amen, amen, amen. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalyapeya Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found, including Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.